Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Movies in a Podshell podcast, the podcast which takes one great film and couples it with a classic movie from another era. I mean, this week it's not another era, but who cares? This week's pick anyway is In Bruges from 2008 by Martin McDonough. I'm joined, as usual, by my co-host, The Dude, but you can call him Johnny. How's it going, Johnny? Oh, we'll be having a chat about that name when we talk about that film. You're going to upset people this week, I've got a feeling. <laughs> you are okay. going to upset people this week. I okay? think it's fair to say this is the first week we're disagreeing on a film, which I think is good. I think it's good to disagree. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, we, it, yeah, we can't all have sunshine and lollipops because sometimes you're wrong and I'm right. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one way of looking at it. Well, anyway... <laughs> Well, go on. Go. What are you saying, Johnny? I was just going to say, what have you been watching this week? I'm curious. I've not watched much, but I'll tell you what I have watched. Uh, Hard Target, by directed by John Woo, Ooh, uh, starring yes. Jean-Claude Van Damme. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. But if you've got it on Blu-ray, I want you to mail it me because I want to get into some John Woo Mission Impossible 2 action. Okay. I, I have got it on Blu-ray, of yes. course. <laughs> what, what, what is it you said last week? Do you, do you ever watch a film? Can you ever watch a film if you don't own it on Blu-ray? The answer is pretty much no, apart from this week's pairing film, which I couldn't get on 4K. But on the flip side, you will watch it in a hotel room on a laptop on, on Blu-ray. That is that is the caveat to that. I'll watch my bloody... I'll watch a film I don't care about in a hotel on a laptop. Don't start throwing your stones when you're in a glass house, Jonathan. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, Hard Target by uh, John Woo. Mm-hmm. Really good. It, it, it's, it's ridiculous. It's exactly what you'd expect from John Woo. He also, obviously, I talk about it all the time. He directed a film called Hard Boil and The Killing with Chow Yun-Fat. Uh, re- like, yeah, he's, he's an action specialist. I have also been watching The Mandalorian. Mm-hmm. I've now finished season one. I did want to speak to you about this because I know you finished all of it. I know it's not a film, but I must say, can I just say it's a really well-produced TV show with quite engaging characters, but the plot is paper thin, in my opinion. I'm, I don't disagree with that, but a lot of it for that film is about it being in the Star Wars world. And I think you raise a valid point. So we, t- we did speak very briefly about it this morning, which was if it wasn't a Star Wars product, I don't think it would be as successful as it is. It's the fact you're looking at Boba Fett's armor and I know, okay, Mandalorian armor and you're seeing there's a Greedo in the background, there's a disc, there's a lightsaber or, or what have you. It's, it's And I, I can't lie, I love seeing all the old used future elements from A New Hope in a TV series. And a lot of the reason I like The Mandalorian it's on a technical level, the way they've made it, this whole thing where the, the shift away from green screen and the shift to these massive LED... Do you know about this? Well, so I knew... So I must... Can I just say that I did enjoy it? I did enjoy the first season. I was. It wasn't the 10 I was expecting because everyone was raving about it. The action sequences are great. The like, But what you've just said, the physical effects, mm-hmm. I... It's yeah that you can tell they've moved away from green screen. It looks gorgeous. I don't know what's this. So what's the LED thing? So it's really cool. So basically, imagine. Did you see the film Oblivion? Tom Cruise. I've seen it once. Okay, so I've that, seen it once, but I can't remember it really. He lives in the film. It's in the future, and he's on this sky deck. And around the sky deck, rather than have they built a set of this sky deck, but rather than use a green screen and have all the green spill and on all the reflections because it's a really clean modern building they said why don't we just build a massive led screen and put a real sky on it 
and then it will emit the light that would come from the sky. So it's a that's it's, really cool. It's I wouldn't say it's cheaper because building the massive LED screens an issue. But what's advanced now is that was just using the light to affect the way the sets, the reflections on the set, okay? What they've shifted yeah. to now is the backgrounds are CGI made in the Unreal Engine. And what it can do is you film someone on a, on a lot and it's like a 180 degree lot. And the backdrop is this LED screen. But when you move a camera, everything moves on an axis, right? So when the camera moves, the background would shift. So if you just had a picture, it wouldn't work if you moved. Does that make sense in yeah. the 3D space? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the computer tracks where the camera is and adjusts for where the stuff should be. So if you've got a small set, it can look massive from the way it moves and positions. It's just, it's next level stuff. And I think Lucasfilm, this was kind of a pet project for Mandalorian. How do we make a TV show? We can't afford to do the green screen all the time. This was the solution. But as I said, I don't think it's taken over in mainstream films or anything as of yet because it's so expensive to get this space up. But it means they can have a bit of a practical set in front of them on the floor as sand, but then the rest of the backdrop, the rest of it is this CGI that's already been made and the camera panning through it. It is the future of where things are going, but it's it's way, way cost prohibitive right now. But even in corporate production, you are starting to see people use it for the you know big backdrops that's that's crazy i that, do, do you know what's really funny you've just literally rattled all that off we have not Sorry. had any preview of that conversation whatsoever i just mentioned mandalorian johnny just happened to know a bunch of stuff about it so and also as thank well, you a really cool thing they've done to capture the spirit of star wars there's a lot of the shots of the the i've forgotten the name of the lead ship in the mandalorian i apologize but the the lead ship they actually filmed a model of it so they went and did the old school technique with a, a DSLR camera right. and shot it that That's way. That's really cool. Put it on the blue screen. You key out the blue screen into the software and then you enhance it with CG. And they said because they had a, a proper model for reference, the lighting is far more realistic. And it's true that the CGI in The Mandalorian looks a hell of a lot better than it ever did in the prequels. But I don't mean to prequel bash. Those films are old now. You know, the CG, they were making them from 1997 onwards, right? So, oh, yeah, so yeah. realistically, it was... 90 CG does look bad. Uh, yeah, a lot of it does. And a lot of early... early the, th the thing that I find frustrating with the prequels, again, I don't know how we got another episode we're talking about Star Wars prequels, but by the Revenge of the Sith, they just nailed the look of the CG and it looked photo real. And it's a shame they weren't at that level for the first two. And of all the things George Lucas goes back and changes in his Star Wars cuts, I just wish he'd go back to the first two prequels with a load of money, update that CGI. It wouldn't make them better. Change the change script and that. Like, what? like go, go back and change the script and like change everything about them. No, but on yeah. it, honestly, you know, you joke about all the changes he has made on those films and he batched on a load of cgi in 1997 to the original trilogy and has rarely updated that and i just think i don't know it's just weird what he picks to change or not however i'm glad you have watched the mandalorian season two i think personally has more of a story for you to get involved in so yeah um yeah, i mean yeah i mean i didn't I, I did enjoy it and i didn't I was just—I just thought that the plot could have been a bit more in depth. I felt like it was very monster of the week, yeah. and like I said last night, it was—I expect that from 1990s Buffy the Vampire Slayer 22 episode season. I don't expect it from an eight episode condensed season when the episodes are between 35 minutes and 45 minutes long. Why? Why are we seeing monster of the week? It's, it's just bizarre. Because I think the idea of The Mandalorian was the original Star Wars was the idea of a modern fairy tale in the future, but also it had a lot of elements of the samurai and the Western genre. 
So Absolutely, what this yeah. is doing is the same thing. It's like he walks in and solves a problem for the good of the people nearly every week. That is basically the story of the Mandalorian. And then there'll be an overarching storyline of helping someone else. And each week, yeah. a little, it's like a video game. Here's this little bit and you get your next bit of armor or here's your little bit and this leads to the next story link in the thing so i think that's i think they were trying to keep it simple and to be honest that's actually why i enjoy it and i think we were speaking to some uh, speaking to peter about it and he said the same thing being able to actually just take it a week at a time and it be a small chunk is actually quite nice seeing different places yeah and and when you said that the point you've just made the point pete made I actually, it's, it, that's why it's really good to share these things because it made me think about it a little bit differently and yeah. I was a bit more accepting of it. So not for a second was I saying it, it was bad. Like, cause I really, I did, I did really enjoy it. I just thought, oh, I was expecting a little bit more from only an epi- eight episode season. But anyway, it's finished. I'm going to, I will watch season two because I did enjoy it. And, and that's what I've been watching this week. How I'm, the tables have turned. Johnny, uh-huh. I know you've been watching stuff. Tell me. So for the first time in a while, I haven't been watching a Harry Potter film this week. So that's that's the number one start. No, I watched two black and white films completely by chance. So one of them was Modern Though, which was The Lighthouse, which I think we had spoken about briefly before. I think I think you saw yeah, I think I was raving about it. Seen at the cinema, probably before. Uh, anyway, yeah, I seen it. I seen it at the Electric Cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it was it was really I really loved it. Yeah, so what I loved about that film, I won't go into spoilers because uh, it's quite a recent film. I managed to watch it on Now TV. So if you do have Now TV, that's where you can watch it at the moment, and it's obviously available for rent at other places. I really enjoyed the fact that it's very atmospheric from the moment one it's a really repressive atmosphere you it's the noise of the lighthouse and the noise of like just keeping this thing going and there's certain films where you just feel instantly from the start that everything's going to go wrong and everything feels off even when things are good and it really drew you into the world because one of the first scenes is william defoe's uh taking a dump while uh, Robert Patterson sat next to him finishing his bedpan and then walks away and farts and it just kind of sets the tone for this is a it, it makes you feel what a horrible place to be just by a noise and it's like a drop yeah and then a yeah. trump it's and not it's, even in a funny way no, 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 it's no, like sorry. you know when you know when in a fart in a film you usually like yeah. oh, that's funny it's a fart like in a film like where she's like it, you're sitting there and you're like yeah that is horrible and you feel but like you can uh, smell it. You can't, but it, it yeah. feels grimy. But some of the... Uh, this. I love how you clarified that you can't smell it. No. <laughs> <laughs> so the film... The, 4DX. The film is um, 4-3 aspect ratio, which is unusual in itself as well as being black and white. And this shouldn't put you off, people, because if you're going to be watching Justice League, it's now in 4-3 aspect ratio as well. So you might as well get used to it. But no, some yeah, of the... Yeah, on that Snyder Cut. Yeah, some of the camera moves are so intricate. It's lovely seeing a black and white picture, but with modern camera techniques is, I think, what I'm trying to get across and the cinematography is stunning and i hope that from the films we've linked with recently people are so i know some people are really averse to watching black and white films and watching stuff like this will hopefully help you see why they can still be beautiful and and they have their own style yeah there's definitely a lot of there's a few there's a few modern black and white films that you you could watch to get yourself into it you can even watch some films that were presented in color in black and white now so you've got the chance to watch Mad Max Fury Road, yeah. which is available in black and white. And you can also watch Parasite, which is available in black and white mm-hmm. again. Um, but yeah, there's there's uh, there's quite a few uh, black and white films you can watch. You've got, um, I think, Alfonso Cuaron's Roma yes. in black and white, which is actually, it's a bit more of an art house film. Um, art house pretty much equals boring to your 
average viewer and kind of me. Uh, <laughs> I don't really, I'm not really a huge fan of Roma, but it's a beautiful film in terms of how it's presented. Yeah, there there is a few modern. And I also watched uh, Strange Love after watching after discussing Kubrick last week. I kind of carried on yes. the theme uh, again. This one's on now TV at the moment for anyone who does want to watch it. It's kind of it's a very it's a really strange film. I really enjoyed it. But I can't really describe it. It's very odd. It's 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 like the tone. It's, yeah, the, it, the tone is very strange. It's kind of showing you how crazy the idea of war is and how ridiculous the Cold War was and the whole situation. But yeah. I sent you a picture and I said, guess what film I'm watching? And you said, either Doctor Strangelove or Austin Powers. And it kind of, that's what it's going for because it's the same set designer <laughs> as uh, the first few Bond films, actually. It's Kubrick. Ah, Nixon. right, okay. So there is a link. Yeah. But yeah, really enjoyed that. Again, much like, it's very different in tone to Full Metal Jacket, but it has that kind of, it's a satirical take on it, but certain characters in it are very serious then other characters are very melodramatic and over the top and i find that tone sometimes quite hard for this it did work it did work i've heard it's great i've heard really good things about it i think you'd enjoy it it's not it's not a particularly long film either in my head i think it was only about an hour and 40 minutes which i know this is bad but when we're doing the podcast if we can watch more shorter films i don't know it just seems easier because watching two films a week and then watching the additional ones on top it can feel like you're strapped for time so when we get these hour and a half hour and 40 pictures in it feels like an absolute win doesn't it i love a 90 minute movie i say it all the time that 90 minute movies is it's my favorite length do you know it's perfect you don't need any more when i was younger though i had this thing which is if a film wasn't at least two hours long it was bad and the reason i made this logic up and and i'm happy to know why this isn't true is because Austin Powers' gold memo was 90 minutes, and I thought the reason it was a bad film for me was because it was 90 minutes long. I didn't associate the idea of length and exactly equal quality in terms of the output. Well, and you know, I've, I've thought about this lately. All I do now, because obviously I work full-time, I I just look at the runtime of everything. Whereas, and I, and I, was, I was thinking the other day, I never, I couldn't tell you the runtime of anything when I was mm. a teenager, because time isn't an issue. Yeah. So when I was a teenager, I would watch. I wouldn't even. I wouldn't even consider the runtime before I put it on. But now you must consider it because it's like, right? Is this gonna finish before half ten? Yeah. Because I need to be in Betty buys because I've got an early start in the morning. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it's a strange concept. Also, I have this bad thing recently where I say, well, I could watch so many episodes of this program or watch a film, and I think that's something we contend with more now because of streaming platforms putting series all up at once and kind of wanting to get ahead of it before it gets leaked online or you see something you don't want to see with plot reveals. So a film kind of... Do do you know what I mean? I I just think... Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, I fully, fully understand what you mean. Let's get into the main body of the show. Just like every week, we grab a film. We grab it with our hands. No, we don't. But we take a film. This week's film, as we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, is In Bruges from 2008, written and directed by Martin McDonough. For two weeks, in Bruges, in a room like this, with you? No way. You're about the worst tourist in the whole world. Maybe that's what hell is. The entire rest of eternity spent in Bruges. Johnny, had you seen it before? What did you think of it? So I saw this film with my dad years and years ago and I'll be completely honest I'd forgotten about it I hadn't really got any memory of it I remembered Colin Farrell was in Bruges and that was my limit of it right. but 
I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's not my usual kind of film, actually, to be honest, in terms of tone. I think you're more into gangster flicks and that kind of thing. And this isn't a gangster picture, but that kind of that world, let's say. Oh, absolutely. You know? yeah. This um, is definitely my more, more my kind yeah. of thing. And I just really, really enjoyed it. We'll, we'll delve into why, but a few things off the, off the bat as the overview. It's shot beautifully. Every shot of it, the, the lighting, everything is just stunning. Bruges' location is amazing and works really well as a, a metaphor for what they're talking about, which we'll delve more into. But also, yeah. Colin Farrell just being in his actual accent, I think, really helps it. Rather yeah, than hearing I- him do American, and, and that's not because he can't do an American accent, but it's just really nice when you see an actor use their native Accent for well, a, a quick little a quick little tidbit for you, actually. So originally, Martin McDonough wrote it, and he, he he intended for it to be two British people, but then he he heard Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson on set, who are who are both Irish, and he's like, just let just let them do it because it's let let them be Irish because it just makes everything easier. So I should say, had you seen it before? I th- well, I'm pretty sure you had seen I, it. Yeah, I'd, yeah, I'd seen it before, yeah. I, I owned it on DVD. I've now mm-hmm. got it on Blu-ray. It was, I really did love the film. I think this time round, I loved it even more. And I, I think I appreciated the script more. It's it's probably one of the best scripts that I've, I've heard. Um, maybe that's because I'm just fresh off the bat, but it's, I just find it hilarious from start to finish. Not Not particularly politically correct, but it was 2008 and it it really, really funny. And Martin McDonough is sort of, he's notorious for writing those kind of like, it's a, it's a black comedy. Um, so yeah, uh, what about you, Johnny? What did you think of the script? I think it's, it's, what amazes me is how it makes you feel for these characters, even though they're people I wouldn't want to know, if that makes sense. So there's <laughs> yeah. there two people who I would not want to have any connotation with or any link, sorry, any link to at all. But it makes you feel sympathetic towards them. And at the start of the film, it kind of introduced them in a very offhand manner. So you don't really get to know what they're about. And the film's really good at gradually revealing who these people are. And at one point you think, well, I really don't like them. And then you feel sympathetic towards them. And by the end, you want them to be redeemed through the actions of the film. And I think that to me is good writing to take someone who I don't want to be associated with and then make me really care about them. And then without getting into the ending and feel for for what does occur, I think that to me is good writing, but also such good performances. Brendan Gleeson is brilliant as uh, Ken. I've I've not seen him yeah. in anything else to be honest, apart from as Mad Eye Moody. I really mm. haven't seen him. Well, much. funny you mention that, right? Can I just mention? Is this the film outside Harry Potter with the most Harry Potter characters Must be. in it together? Do you know how many there are? So you've got Fleur de la Claw, who's who's yep. um, Chloe in the film. You've got Ralph Fiennes, yep. obviously Voldemort. You've got Brendan Gleeson as Ken. Colin Farrell, who was then in what do you call it? Um, Fantastic Beasts. Fantastic Beasts. Yeah, you've probably got more. I, I don't know. Well, then, so then you've actually got, um, you've also got the priest who uh, Colin Farrell shoots. That's that's the mission he was on. He is actually Aberforth Dumbledore. <laughs> so oh, there's it? actually five. Yeah, there's oh. there's five people that were in a Harry Potter film, right? And so the Goblet of Fire was actually made before this. It's it's crazy. Oh, yeah, oh. yeah, it was. Yeah, so it's it's really interesting. So the film is a comedy first and foremost. It's a black comedy. And then it turns really dark. It so it begins with basically Brendan Gleeson's character and Colin Farrell's character, Ray and Ken, 
and they're walking they're they're sort of walking around Bruges. Brendan Gleeson's character is really enjoying himself, going to see the sights, and Colin Farrell's character, Ray, is really hating it, hating every moment of it, and he just wishes he was back in London having a pint. And so at that one point it turns really dark and they have, they've got like quite good camaraderie. It's really funny. Um, and it turns dark. It shows a flashback of actually what happened. Mm-hmm. So Ken, Ken, Brendan Gleeson's character brought Colin Farrell's character in as a hitman. And it was Ray, who is Colin Farrell's character. It was his first job and he goes to kill a priest. And so they, he's in the, he's in the priest and he's in the confession and he says, Oh, well, what have you done? And he said, and he, I think he says, I've killed a priest. That's it, yeah. No, I've killed... He's, uh, yeah, he's something, something along those lines. But anyway, the priest runs out and Colin Farrell follows him. He shoots the priest in the back, and but in front of the priest was a child that he mm-hmm. didn't see. And he ends up killing the child. So, and, and, and all of a sudden, it goes from this really funny black comedy to quite a somber moment, doesn't it? Like, yeah, it's you brutal. actually you see... see the shot. You see the bullet. Yeah, yeah, you see the bullet going into the child's head and it's... It's yeah. horrible. It was. It's awful, isn't it? I think as well. A black comedy should shock you, because what it does is it makes you accept that these situations are funny that you wouldn't normally find funny, and you kind of get in that world, and then it brings you straight back down to earth by saying, "Yeah, but look what they did." You, you know, I think Tarantino does that as well Absolutely. with his films. That kind of the writing style. Yeah, yeah, he does. He does hundred percent. And but and 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 what other, have you seen other Martin McDonough films, Johnny? No, I haven't, and I'm annoyed about this because I really wanted to watch Three Billboards before we came onto the podcast, but unfortunately, I couldn't get it on any of the platforms. We, I've got the app for seeing what we can watch things on, and at the moment, I'm not having a good run of watching anything which is on any of those apps. But I shall be watching it, and <laughs> hoping. We'll probably end up doing an episode, not for a while, because we've got so much to get through. But I would imagine from what I've read and what I've seen, I think I will like both of those other two films. So I'd be keen to talk. Seven Psychopaths as well. Yeah. Yeah. And then they're both they're both very much uh, he's got he has got that. you, You can see that more in Seven Psychopaths. I would say that Three Billboards is slightly separate. Very still very, very funny. I was going to say the the thing I really enjoy about the film, though, is it's the use of the location because the film has a lot of Catholic iconography throughout it. And what we learn throughout the story is they've selected Bruges for this reason, because it's the story's about redemption, isn't it? So we learn... Yes, yeah, it's, it's about morality. It's about yeah. consequences. Yeah. We see this horrible, horrible thing happen, but we actually learn the reason he was sent to put hit out on that priest was because he had been interfering with other children. That is made abundantly clear that is why the hit was taken out and uh, uh, Brendan Gleeson's character says Ken says to him yes you killed one boy and it's it's unforgivable however the reason you were sent there and think about all the boys you've saved and it's a weird morality weird ethical question to put in front of you and you think about and it's it's difficult it's really difficult and I don't know. It, it just stops and, it, as you said, shocks you into thinking about something you wouldn't even ever consider and try. It adds, it, yeah, it adds so much depth to the film. Like mm-hmm. it adds so much depth to what appears to be just a just a comedy about two hitmen. And when you when you actually when all those pieces come together, so they they're in um, actually this this church at one point, and they're looking at a painting which is actually really really important, and. Brendan Gleeson's character is actually saying, 
well, so Colin Farrell again is really upset about being in there. He really doesn't want to be there. He just wants to go for a beer. Just to clarify, when Colin Farrell's being a pain in the ass, he's like a 14-year-old me on holiday because my parents used to take me around lots of churches and these kind of things. And if I didn't want to be there, I was also the stroppy teenager in the corner. But Colin Farrell at this point's in his 30s and he's making his chair screech as loudly as possible while he's in the church or he's like shuffling his feet or slamming along just <laughs> yeah exactly just making himself be known because the whole point is they're lying low as well so every time he's making himself seen it kind of defeats the object of why they're in Bruges anyway yeah and, and Colin Farrell takes interest in a certain painting so the painting's actually Hieronymus Bosch and it's about the final day on earth and every and so Brendan Gleeson then explains to Colin Farrell is everyone's ju- they're judged for all the crimes they've committed and shortly that's why you so that's why you see like him acting so odd and uptight he's dealing with the death of the child mm-hmm. he's absolutely riddled with guilt and there's like you you'll notice that this there's, there's bosch symbolism throughout the film yeah and it almost suggests that bruges is a wait like the waiting period it's like purgatory. purgatory yeah yeah and and it's really like that that is remember like bear this in mind for when we talk about the end of the film because that mm-hmm. that piece about that painting is super super important yeah bruges bruges is literally a, a visual metaphor for purgatory and the whole thing is the idea of purgatory is you don't it, you're between two places and literally the killers are between two places they're waiting for their next job potentially or to go back home home they don't know but also the whole time colin farrell's character ray is looking back on his sins throughout which is this mur- he's he's not bothered about the murder of the priest he's quite easy to live with that it's the murder of the child and it's he's waiting for his day of reckoning i suppose by being in bruges and he's depressed isn't he we 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 discovered he's definitely his character is depressed and he is suicidal really well absolutely he can't live with himself anymore and then so this this all they've had their terrible first day and they end up so Colin Farrell's character just go. He, he ends. They end. He ends up going out and just getting getting drunk and seeing. They both end up going out, getting drunk, and they stumble across this movie set. Um, and they go out. For, they're out for the night, but they should have been waiting on a phone call from a guy called Harry, who's their boss, who's played by who's Ralph plays, yeah. yeah, who who is perfect, absolutely perfect. He plays a very and, over the top theatrical Cockney. But he, he, the, uh, he, he, what's his character called? Sorry, is it? Um, Harry. Harry. Harry's big thing is he's got this moral code. So he, he's kind of deals with the fact of being a serial killer because I say serial killer, a hitman, however you want to say it, because of the fact that he lives by a code. So the priest dies because of what he did to other people. And yeah. we find out later he helps, he helped Ken get in the hitman scene for something that happened to a person in his life. So it's, it's, Eye for an eye is kind of what he believes in. He believes in an eye for an eye, let's say. Yeah. And then, but if you cross the barrier, which is you kill children, then you are struck off. You you can't live in his code. And his moral code becomes really important at the end of the film because his big moral code is you, you can't get away with killing kids, which feeds in all the way to the end of the film, which we will get to. Absolutely, yeah. And 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 this film, we're doing more of a play-by-play this week because... This, this film kind of does warrant it. We're not going to spend too much time on certain parts, no. but we will sort of like, it's, it is important to go through the sequence. After, after this sort of happens, they, they stumble across this movie set and um, Colin Farrell's character sees this sees this girl, Chloe, who he really, really likes and he, he gets a date with her. 
And then they go back to the hotel and they're in the hotel and they've missed a phone call. So they've missed a phone call from Harry. He says, well, you're not... And they read, they read the... Uh, they read the... What's what is it? it? A message. Like read, they read yeah. the... Like, yeah, he leaves a message with a woman that owns the place and he calls her a secretary. <laughs> and she's, she is re- he's really like demeaning towards her. He's like, what were you going to ask you? And it's, it's just basically this monologue and it's really, really funny. And then... Brendan Gleeson's like, oh no, we weren't in. We're going to get in so much trouble. Like, you better be in tomorrow night. Like, and it, and so they they do stay in the next night. And in the end, uh, sort of, he's, Ralph Ralph finds answers the phone as Harry. No, he calls he calls him up and he says, uh, it's almost like that snatch dialogue, isn't it? Yeah, I think the 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 key thing is for, for this when um, the second call comes in. Ray Ray's already organised to go on a date. So That's it, yeah. He he basically says, "Well, we only need one of us in to accept the phone call." So <laughs> yeah. you know, so when we actually get the phone call, Ken is in his in, in on his own in the room, but he has to pretend that he's not on his own in the room, and that he then sends Colin Farrell's character away to go out because he doesn't want Ralph Fiennes' character doesn't want to hear. And Colin Farrell to hear him on the phone. It's just yeah, it's yeah. brilliant. It's really good. Oh, it's so it's, really it's so funny. Think think if you've seen the film uh, Ben, well, Sexy Beast by uh, with Ben Kings- Kingsley. Think yes. think that when you're thinking of this character, and he's saying, "Oh, I went to Bruges when I was seven. It's lovely. All the cobbled streets. It's a fairy tale town." And so he's he's sort of led Ken into like a false. Sense. Is it no? Is it Ray? Who's Brendan Gleeson's character? Uh, Ken. Yeah, Ken. Yeah, so Ken, he leads Ken into a false sense of security at this point, and Ken's like, he's like, oh, is he really enjoying it? I really want him to enjoy it, and he, and so Ken's just like, Ken's like, well, no, actually, I don't, I don't think it's his type of thing, but I'm really having fun. He's like, what do you mean? It's not his type of thing. It's a fairy tale town, and he starts going absolutely mad. He's like, oh no, no, no. I mean, when I, when I'm, when I mean, it's not this type of thing. Is it's just just the motorways when you get off, yeah. when you get off when the, got off the oh, plane. motorways yeah yeah there wasn't a motorway <laughs> when I came in there you know there's not a dual carriageway into Bruges I just yeah it's it's really hysterical conversation but also this the, the, what's brilliant in this scene is before the phone rings Ray is watching the TV and when he's watching the t- sorry Kenny's watching yes. the TV and when he's watching the TV it's Awesome Wells Awesome Wells sorry it's Awesome Wells and it's a touch famous, of evil the famous one take and then the phone conversation that then happens with Ken and with Ralph Fiennes character is all one take and I didn't even notice that the first time until I read it on the trivia and I went oh yeah that's true because I was so drawn in to the performance I didn't really think about it which I think is great you know yeah I mean, I mean what like so while, while, while sort of Ken's getting a really hard time Ray's out on a date like and really enjoying himself and there's an altercation with a Canadian man that is one of the funniest parts yeah. of the whole film for me. I won't really go into it because I can't without offending people. But it's really, really funny. And then he kind of go. He goes back with Chloe, and they start getting it on. And at this point, then like they, it's it's obviously a setup. And this French guy comes in and sticks a gun in the back of his head. Because basically, Chloe does this setup, which is that's the the characters on the date with Chloe has this setup, which is. She gets tourists to take her out on dates, invites them back to the house, and then just as things are about to kick off, she has someone storm the room and they rob them, essentially. Yeah, but I mean, but Ray wouldn't let that happen, would he? <laughs> of course no. he wouldn't let that happen. And it's, it, yeah, again, it, it makes for another really, really funny scene. 
And after all this goes on, they have him and... So essentially, we forget to mention that Harry, on the like their boss, is on the phone to Ken and actually says to Ken, look, he's killed a kid. You need to kill him. Yeah. Get a gun from X place. And he's got to go in. Obviously, re- uh, Ken's really upset at this point. And then they they meet up together, Ken and Ray, and they go on a night of coke, acid, yeah. and prostitutes. Yeah. We learn a lot at this point. But before, I think we are in play-by-play territory, and I don't mean to. It's really hard with this film because of the way the reveals happen. It's, it's difficult to jump around it. But what I would say is Ray, Colin Farrell's character, Ray, is so depressed that before he goes on the date, he's literally repeatedly touched his face to try and feel something because he said previously on a park bench that he can't feel anything since he killed the child. Right. He says this to Ken. I actually didn't notice that. Yeah, That's really, so really he's interesting. Like touching his face, and then it's really. I wondered why he was doing that. Yeah, and then it's really sad because the only good thing for him in Bruges is Chloe, and then when he finds out Chloe's just gone out with him on this date to set him up, he then says, "I knew it was too good to be true." And she says, "What?" And he said, "Oh, I knew someone, someone nice like you wouldn't like me." But then she actually falls for him because he says that. But he's just so devastated because. She's the first thing that's made him feel, in admittedly, in a short period of time. And it really affects him when he finds out that she was only doing it for to set him up, essentially. But then after that, it is all kind of resolved because she, she actually says to him, I, I will see you again. Yeah, and it, and it, and it finishes with, uh, after this sort of coke, acid, and, well, this drug-fueled f- night, they're steaming it the morning after... Ray, I, I really sort of this like fully resonated with me. Like Ray's like lying in bed crying, um, and it's like you know that depression you get yeah. after you've been on night out and you've you've had way too many drinks, and you just like you, you get that what is it the uh, the beer fear they call it. Well, I just like really worried in the morning. Yeah, you just kind of say I will never drink again until the following week, and then it happens again anyway. Exactly. Yeah, and he's, he's literally there's a tear rolling down his face. Uh, that's what I took from that anyway. Um, but then yeah, so next day um ken goes to get the gun he goes to kill him in the park he goes to kill ray in the park but ray's already there with a gun to his own head about to kill himself and what's brilliant about this scene is the tension is we see the sad thing is that ray um, colin farrell's character ray is at the park and he's at a children's park because he's thinking about what he's done and he's got, um, we don't see it initially, he's got a pistol. We see it from Ken's perspective. So Ken's sneaking up onto Ray. And we see, I mean, uh, one thing I would say is Ken pulls the gun out pretty a long time before he gets to Colin Farrell in the open. But he storms over to him and we, and we follow the gun's perspective. And we think, oh God, he's going to get him, he's going to get him. But then just as he's about to go and pull the trigger, Colin Farrell puts the gun to his own head and Ken and Ken stops him. Because Ken says to him, what are you doing? You shouldn't be shooting yourself. And Ken before didn't want to kill him. And I don't think he would have followed it through even if he was going to kill himself. But maybe it's the realisation that he is in such a bad place. And he believes because he knows he's done wrong, because because Ray knows he's done wrong, Ken believes that he can be redeemed. And again, with the Catholic ideology, uh, iconography we see throughout the film is this idea of redemption and the moral codes that they're discussing. So he decides that forget about Harry, forget about Harry's rules that we talked about at the start. This kid deserves to be redeemed. And actually, by not shooting Ray, 
Ken himself feels redeemed. We find out on the drug-fueled evening that James discussed that Ken's wife died and Harry gave him the opportunity to go and kill his wife's killer. So he is indebted to Harry. He knows he's a bad person, but he is indebted to him because of the fact he helped him get through that phase in his life. But he he's not happy with what he does. But with Colin Farrell's character, Ray, he sees a younger version of himself and, and says, you can have a new life. You're young enough to go and do something else. Do it, go anywhere. I'm going to put you on a train, get you out of Bruges, and I'll deal with Harry and the consequences. And after he makes this decision, his character, Ray, uh, sorry, Ken, um, Ken he's, he looks visibly better. He's not so uptight all the time. And their rapport gets a lot better as well, doesn't it? The way they deal with each other. It's just, it's a really weird, sweet relationship between the two of them, which is really hard to describe to you see in the film, because it's very odd. Yeah, and after what we've spoken about, about the the fact that the film is a film about redemption and morality, and that looking looking through it with a kind of religious lens, mm. it's, I, I never had watched it in this way before, so no. it's really interesting to now come to it and watch it and look out for these things. So if you have seen it before, Rewatch it again, and yeah. I promise you, you'll get so much more from it this time. And there's actually even there's there's more we can go into like towards the end because that's when it really all comes to a head. I was going to say the other, the other thing we've talked about haven't spoke about actually is there's they go to an art museum together, and Ray is hating the art museum like absolutely hating it. But they see multiple paintings. But I think we've talked about the one at the church. But there's other paintings linked to purgatory and linked to judgment and talking about. Yeah. All, all these old-fashioned universities, old-fashioned ways that things were dealt with when wrongs were committed, when a wrong thing had been done, let's say. And Ray, this is what preys on Ray the whole time. He's thinking of all this stuff, and I think that is actually what leads to his decision to kill himself. Yeah, and then and Ray's, Ray gets put on a train. Harry is called by Ken and basically told, listen, he's on a train, do what you need to do but I ain't killing him. And Harry, at this point, you see, you see like the best of Ralph Fiennes and he's just smashing, smashing phone. the phone, yeah. absolutely smashing it. And his wife says, Harry, it's an inanimate object. And he's like, you're an inanimate object. And oh, he's like screaming at his wife. I could not stop laughing at that moment. It cracked it's me really, up. really as well. It was so funny. So yeah, funny. And, then, and then he goes in dead calm. He's like, I'm really sorry for calling you an inanimate object. Like, it's actually like, by the way, if we've got any uh, listeners from down south London, I really apologise for my Cockney accent, but I'm doing my best. It, but that that is a really funny part. And anyway, Harry gets gets he goes to Bruges straight away, absolutely raging. And you see his journey. You see you see his journey. That, yeah. that quick journey when he's he's on the plane, raging. He gets off the plane, raging. He's walking along the bridge, raging. It's a it's brilliant just montage. hilarious. It reminded it me really, of the yeah. montage in Romeo and Juliet with the priest when you find out where the FedEx letter's gone. Really, really. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically yeah, yeah. condensing in 20 seconds the whole process of a him journey, Yeah, a massive Bruges. journey. I think it's brilliant. Really, really, really funny. He, he goes to Bruges and he meets, he, he meets Ken and he meets Ken outside and they have this conversation and they're sort of arguing and at this point now Ken is expecting Harry to kill him so they go to the tower where, and the tower is it's been mentioned a couple of times in the film we haven't mentioned it tonight because we can't so go through it all one hour yeah. 40 minutes anyway so they go to the tower um, and they have this moment at the top of the tower where they're, so, they're sort of like 
Ken is really sort of opening up to Harry and saying, look, I love you. Like, I really love you. Like, you're, you're a really good friend and all this. And then Harry kind of also shows a bit of morality at this point now. He's He, he comes around to the idea. He's like, yeah, okay, that's that's fine. Um, I can't, I can't, um, I can't kill you now, can I? After you said all that nice things, and he shoots him in the leg. <laughs> yeah, which is which is pretty. But it's it's basically he he. I don't think at any point Harry agrees with the fact that he deserves to be redeemed, that Ray deserves to be redeemed, or have a second chance. But he respects Ken enough to not shoot him and stand by him because yeah, that's that's kind of the the shift we get from that. That's the yeah the progression i suppose of the character and so and so there was something ray did earlier on in the film punching a man and punching his wife yeah and so at uh, this, this so is the date he, with chloe he he yeah. basically is what is told before he goes on this date don't attract any attention he comes back and he says how was your evening he says well i punched a guy i punched a woman who tried to attack me with a bottle and also i shot blanks in the eye of someone who tried to rob me so in the space of an evening he's basically done the polar opposite of what he's been told to do yeah he's had a crazy night he has been arrested off the train by a canadian man who he punched like the canadian man who he punched has gone to the police he's been arrested off the train and taken back to bruges the place where he did not want to go yeah at this point now it's kind of it's a really it's really clever how it all the jigsaw all comes together and ray is with chloe having a date literally across the road from where ken and harry are having this argument and they go up to the tower and obviously they've been shot Ken's been shot at this point Harry's taken him down the tower sort of like you deserve this like uh, what else what else do you expect me to do and then the Frenchman with that's had a blank shot in his eye comes up he says Ray's down here and at this point now sort of Harry is like right and then going for him. Ken won't let him leave and Harry ends up shooting Ken in the neck yeah but Ken is so adamant that Ray deserves to be redeemed that he's going to try and warn him. So he's about halfway down the staircase of this tower and he drags himself all the way up to the top of this tower. And when he gets to the top of the tower, he's thinking, I'll shoot down and get him, but it's foggy at the top. Yeah. And again, black comedy, the joke is of all nights, it would be foggy on the one evening he needs to see down there. And he has to make a decision. He needs to cause uh, attract attention and and yeah let and at this point now sorry the, the, there's a song by the dubliners playing oh it's and beautiful. it's it's Haunting, it is, actually it is uh it's such a perfect fit for this moment obviously the dubliners are an irish band as well um yeah so this song's playing and he earlier on in the film he tries to pay to get into this tower with coins yeah and the man won't let him pay because he's 10 10 cents short or something and so he has these coins and he never would have had the coins. And what he does is he drops the coins from the top of the tower to basically warn the people on the street that he's about to throw himself off. Yeah. And it makes everyone start to look over that way as well to attract them that something's about to happen. And then he he jumps, he commits suicide. And again, brutal. We see it from a POV perspective and he lands and Ray spots him because he's on the date with Chloe. But it, so in this, so yeah, so sorry, in this moment, when the, when this song's playing, it's almost like it's Ken's swan song. Yeah. But at the same time, so Ken is plummeting down to earth. Look at it w- way, whatever way you want to see it, like whether it's um, 
a fall from heaven, a fall from grace. I don't know. But Ray, it shows Ray with Chloe. And this is the point in the film where he's truly happy for the first time in the whole film. Like, yeah. actually, all is forgotten. They're laughing, they're joking, and there's bright lights in the background. It's a really, it's like an angelic moment almost, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, 100%. And it's, uh, yeah, we, we've, we've made the point. Chloe is his light and his way out, especially after when he gets, again, this film has a massive attention to detail because earlier on in the film, Chloe gives him a business card because she's the one who gets him out of, prison on uh, on bail sorry and again most films it would just be she picks him up and it goes how did they find each other but this film has such attention to detail that the fact they gave they made him made her give him a business card earlier on in the film it was just i don't know i love stuff like that when it all knits together perfectly which this film does yeah absolutely and and i'm i don't we're going we're going to spoil the ending but we're not going to spoil how the ending happens because that is just too much but essentially to leave you with the end of the film, Harry now chases Ray through Bruges and they're they're having this big they've had this big chase. They've had a they've had a kind of a shootout and Harry shoots Ray from a quite a distance, shoots him twice or three times, and Ray is now sort of dragging himself through the streets and he he finds himself upon this movie set again. Yeah. And upon this movie set, it's it's important to know the, um, there is a character on the, in the film called Jimmy um, who also plays a big part he's he's acting in the film uh, but it is important to note that he's a person of short stature and the reason why that's important is because in this particular moment he's dressed as a schoolboy and so when Harry carries on shooting Ray it's kind of a parallel to the beginning of the film yeah. because he shoots Ray and through the bullets go through him and shoot Jimmy and Jimmy at this point is dressed as a schoolboy Harry looks and he says oh okay then because of his moral code he accepts the fact that he's preached all along that if you kill a child you have to die and he believes he has shot a child himself so he he shoots himself then and there before Harry kills himself Ray attempts to save Harry at this point by telling him it's not a child and that's thus redeeming himself is almost like at this point now for Ray this is like hell because he hates Bruges anyway but for Ket um, for Harry sorry mm-hmm. Harry is he's in heaven he's in his it's a fairy tale town and, and, that, and also the cinematography it's snowing at this point because they're on a film set and it's fake snow which they've got for the but, film yeah so yeah. it's snowing and the, obviously there's a lot of like iconography as well so it's, it's like when actually have the beak masks I can't describe but yeah like, from masquerade balls well, are quite creepy so it's animal animal heads animal heads and skulls it mirrors the the paintings earlier yes. in the film of judgment yeah and it and then it all comes full circle it's so so clever such a poignant end you you don't even find out whether Ray lives or dies. No. It's it's so good. And what about the score as well? The Sorry. S- no, no. The score is unbelievable. The score is unbelievable yeah, it's gorgeous. throughout, isn't it? It's 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 really simple. It reminds me of it's quite similar in my head to the Amelie score, if you can remember that. But in terms of it's a very simple light mo- motif which you hear throughout the film and it's you you were humming it before we started the podcast today so it's obviously stuck in I your was head. it's still in my head now I could hum it again but I won't no we're okay we're okay but there's so much to say about this film and I, I would implore all of you if you have not already seen it to go and watch it because it's as as me and Jamie said 
it's a film that as a teenager I watched and had a certain level of depth to it and then watching it this time viewed it with completely different mindset and I just thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it also I think what I took from it as well from the direction is the fact that apparently the director has quite a background in theatre with plays delving into issues such as morality etc etc and you can tell for me that it's someone who knows how to work with actors because all the performances there's not a bad one in there it's I, I don't know can you think of any any person no absolutely not no and i think my, my favorite performance in there is is ralph fines is it? his character is yeah it is i, I just think he i just think he's so uh, maybe because because of how much he makes me laugh colin farrell's got a lot of nuance to his performance but ralph fines is just hilarious i think colin farrell is by far the best one in it because he at the same is trying to output so much he's trying to show a person who's repressing memories he's trying to repress the fact that he's suicidal and he's doing all these things that are outwardly funny but he's trying too hard and the point is showing that he's he's not coping i don't know i just thought i think previously for me i've watched other colin farrell things where he gets a lot of flack and then watching something like this where it's just is this would we describe this as a character study probably not but it feels like the amount of time and energy given towards these characters and their motivations and the progression it feels almost as like, I, th- I mean yeah, I don't think it's not a far cry like it's, yeah. it's not yeah it's, it's not a, it's not a ridiculous idea yeah of course it is it, it follows it does follow characters changing throughout a film and trying to redeem themselves Oh, yeah, of course, you wouldn't describe the film as a character study, but it, it is like there, there is it's de- there's definite definite beelines into that. And I know we've said this before, but I must reiterate the Bruges location is fantastic. It looks stunning, and the cinematography is just gorgeous. It's it's just a really great film. It's it's nice because I think for me, from what I know about this, this was quite a cult film. Really, I don't think it had a massive release. I think I know it was in. Conjunction with no, it's really four, it was a film. It's a film four, like yeah. film four, um, like released it, and it's which is well, they're they're not exactly the biggest um, distributor, no. but they all they mostly distribute really really good films. Yeah. Obviously, they don't have the same prestige as a distributor like A twenty four because everyone wants to sort of pretend that every single film they release is incredible, but they're just a distributor. Remember, um, <laughs> that's a that's definitely that a deep dive a discussion for another day. So yeah, no. So we're going to leave you, Johnny. One more thing for you from you. No, I was going to say, have we got any questions related to Imbruge that you want us to go through? We actually, we actually haven't got any questions from Imbruge this week, but we have got some questions from our next film that we are looking at, which I'm actually really excited to discuss. One of my all-time favourites. So we decided this week to link it, and it links actually in quite a, f- a few ways. Really, same composer, Carter Burwell. And he's he he does compose quite a lot of Coen Brothers films. So mm-hmm. he's done the likes of Fargo, uh, No Country for Old Men, True Grit. He's also done Three Billboards, but he's also done the parent film this week, The Big Lebowski, nineteen ninety eight, directed and written by the Coen Brothers. Wait, wait, let me let me explain something to you. Um, I am not Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. You know, uh, that or uh, his dudeness. Starring Jeff Bridges and John Goodman, Steve Buscemi. It's one of my all-time faves. <laughs> Johnny, what did you think about it? This is the first film that I've had to watch the podcast. Aside, I, I actually enjoyed more Wrecking Crew. And I think that is probably... What? <laughs> Honestly, oh my... oh. I t- I'll tell you why. So You're in so much trouble. I'm in so much trouble, but I don't care. 
this is my thing this is my takeaway from it I have watched previous Coen Brothers films so it's not an issue with the directing style I've seen Fargo I enjoy Fargo my issue was I didn't like the character of the dude which is sacrilege to so many people but Jeff Bridges instantly I couldn't connect with him I didn't find him a likeable character and the whole film is following him as a protagonist go from one situation to another I should like this film and I'll tell you why I should not only because of the writing and the direction of the Coen brothers, which I do think is brilliant, I must say, even though I didn't like it myself, I don't not recognise the fact how good it is and what they're doing. But it's using the wrong man setup, which Hitchcock used so often, which I love and buy into every time. So it, it, on paper, this should be my ideal film. But sometimes... I thought you'd love it. You know, when honest. some films just don't click with you, it just didn't click with me at all. But what I must say is the things I did get on with, we haven't really talked about the plot yet. Maybe maybe we should talk about the plot and then I can tell you what I did enjoy from it and I can tell you more about what didn't click with me. So, I mean, you've, you've slightly touched on it. The, the plot is essentially a... Yeah, it's a wrong man setup. It's about... A sort of a, a bit of a the dude Jeff Lebowski he's a bit of a, he's a slacker and he likes bowling he likes smoking weed he likes white Russians he's basically mistaken for another Jeffrey Lebowski who's like a wheelchair bound millionaire um, he finds himself dragged into this sort of series of events um, involving it. so I to be honest what if I said to you this is essentially like a high concept film noir like it's been like it's been compared to the big sleep. Yeah, and again, <laughs> I recognise what they are doing, and I've I think I've watched the exact same. Did you watch a, a film study on this by any chance? On no, I didn't. Uh, no, I didn't watch okay, a film fine. study. I've I just I've read a bit about it, quite a bit about it. So, yeah, I think my main issue, as I said, is I just didn't get on board with Jeff Bridges as the main character, and I think with a film like this, it's so reliant on you accepting yeah. him and if you 100%. don't accept him you're not going to go with it and Jeff Bridges character the whole film is trying to roll him in all these different situations and he's not reacting and I know the whole idea is uh, what's the phrase they say is it the dude the dude abides the dude abides and the problem is if you don't like the dude you're not much asked if he's abiding and I think that was my takeaway from it and, and you know what like I I can I can totally totally understand that because it is the film revolves around that character and if if he annoys you or you just don't find him funny or you don't get it you're gonna hate it you are gonna fully hate the film i personally love it and i think the jeff bridges character is absolutely hilarious he's he's got a couple of friends walter played by john goodman who john goodman says that this is his like John, this is the favourite character he's ever played in a film. John Goodman is absolutely fantastic in this film. What, what I did, I messaged Jamie afterwards and he was gutted because I said I didn't enjoy this film. But what I really took away from it, when you have the trio together that you've just you've just talked about, that uh, when they're at the bowling alley, John Goodman's character is brilliant because all these characters are out of time, aren't they? So uh, the dude is obsessed with like the 60s era of being the hippie mentality and that kind of thing. John Goodman's stuck in the Vietnam War, isn't he? Everything has to be linked back to the war. He mentions being back in Nam so many times throughout the film, almost as many times as Jeff Bridges says man, which is 147 times. That's more times than I've uh, referenced <laughs> Alien 3 on the podcast as well. So, yeah. <laughs> I wondered when that would come in somewhere. Oh, that's good. 
Um, so what about the the cinematography, Johnny? So again, you know it's Roger Deakins. It's a Roger Deakins film, but in my head, it doesn't look like a Roger Deakins film. But I read, it doesn't. I read it doesn't. about what he chose to do for the lighting, and he said he chose to make it so it looked more dirty and grimy. So, for example, we were talking about in Full Metal Jacket last week when the night scenes come on, it's a blue shade and blue tone to make it cool moonlight. This is the opposite. This is everything's lit up at night with horrible yellow fluorescent, not fluorescent, yellow tungsten lights. And it makes the world look more grimy. I think that's the only way I can describe it. And that's what he presented. Yeah. But there are some trip sequences in the film. And one of them, I really like the fact that they had the camera as the bowling ball. And when yeah, the, cam- the ball, yeah. and apparently what they had to do was add the holes in on in CGI on top afterwards. Because it was it's quite, Yeah, it's quite a famous scene. Like, yeah, that, that's that a famous brilliant. scene. It's a, yeah, no, it, it was clever. Um, no, I, I mean the there's many there's many. I'm not. We're not going to go into the second film that much because we never do. But if you haven't seen it, yeah, it's it's definitely it's a full cult film, hundred percent cult film, and it's essentially just um, John Goodman uh, being angry for and it's hilarious an hour and forty minutes, and he's absolutely hilarious. Um, I must say as well, Jeff Bridges, Philip Seymour Hoffman plays the big oh, Lebowski. Um, not Butler. What is he? He's like he's well. It's kind of is it like associate, isn't it? Like yeah, this is and like he's just brilliant. He's I should say the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, shouldn't I? But no, he's just absolutely oh, fantastic. Yeah. The way so the dude visits the other Lebowski the big Lebowski's house and he's touching all the stuff in his wall and there's this nervous laugh that Philip Seymour Hoffman does and it just cracks me up because I don't know he's just the dude's in this yeah he's in this really posh house and he's wearing like jelly shoes yeah and one thing I read that was I thought was hilarious is that the majority of the clothes that um, the dude wears are actually Jeff Bridges' real clothes and he has those jelly shoes and still wears them to this day yeah I'd I'd seen that too but another, another thing I'd seen as well apparently is the when this film came out, it flopped, and then it was a it was a cult film um, in terms of how it how it was received. It's become a cult film, sorry. And there was this cinema when they were filming one of their more recent films. The Coen Brothers saw this cinema, and they said, "Oh, what's this about?" And it was basically every single evening the cinema in America played The Big Lebowski, and they had a, a group of people who would go every single night with the jelly shoes on and with the dudes up on and. You know the dude abides mentality just stuck with them, and it was a cool thing. And they didn't. This lady who saw them didn't know they were the Coen brothers. She said, "Oh, you should come along. It's really fun. It's re- it's really weird." <laughs> you know. Yeah, I, I yeah, I I think this this is ultimately quotable. Um, there's just it's full of like immortal lines. I just fall in love with it. The soundtrack the style of it the tone of it I think everything about it what you've just said though about the tone is what I couldn't deal with I think we've chatted a bit about this when we talked about Doctor Strange at the start everyone in this film is extra kooky or quirky and I think for me I can deal with a few kooky or quirky characters but when everyone's super heightened I found that quite it almost it's a bit like when I watched um, Wes, uh, some of the Wes, Wes Anderson films have that for me. Sometimes he balances it just they do, right. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, other times it definitely. goes, oh, it's it becomes too much. And it just... It, I can understand that. They're incredibly yeah. heightened, is what I'm trying to say. It's like a heightened version of someone. If, if someone's got a character trait, it's it's to the nth degree of that character trait. There's, there's no subtlety there for me. 
But I think that's the point. Absolutely. That is the point. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. And, and Jam, like, you know well enough to know, like, that, yeah, that is the point. If you don't like the dude, you're not going to like the film. The film is iconic. There's, there's a yearly dude festival. Did you know that? No, I didn't. But uh, sorry. It's a yearly festival, yeah. The other thing I, I should have mentioned as well, though, is I do know as well from the Coen brothers that the fact they do always make films that subvert expectations and the eccentric characters are part of that. But what I was going to say was the film feels like it's building up to a climax and it doesn't really have it. And again, this is my fault because I, for the whole film, was expecting... I don't know, just it to go a certain way and it didn't do it. And that's the whole point. Yeah. Again, I mean, I'm, yeah. Because it didn't, because, uh, you know, we never see the, the the whole film revolves around the dude being at the bowling alley, but we never see the dude bowl. It's like a really interesting point. And the film ends before you see him bowling again. But I just, yeah. in my head, it was building up towards some competition or, or something. I don't yeah. know. Just, I mean, there's loads of, like, loads of stuff happens. Like, yeah. he gets drugged. Like, there's a big twist. I don't know. I, yeah, I know. I know what you're saying. And the other I, thing, I is- think I just love that style of Coen Brothers writing. They they write comedy in such a way. And and you know what? This I, when I was when I was watching in Bruges, I really do find these two films. This is the perfect example of the difference between pure dark British humor yes. and that sort of like quirky American humor. They are 100%. so that is that is like the they 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 go hand in hand together but they're also so different. Do you know, I think the, that was the other mistake I made, which is I watched In Bruges on the Friday night and then I watched this the following day. And I think, uh, yeah, of I course. do think with, with the greatest respect, I think people, some people will probably prefer Big Lebowski a lot more to In Bruges and that's also fine. But for me... Oh, they, they absolutely will. Because they will. In Bruges clicked with me so much and as we've talked about, had so many layers to it. I found it really hard then to watch Big Lebowski where for me it seemed... Quite one note, and as we said, as we said, the key thing for me is if you don't, if you don't like the central character, it's very difficult to then go through a whole two-hour film or whatever it is getting on board. Yeah. With that. So yeah, so a, like a peek behind the curtain, actually, for like the listeners, is that we originally started this with the intention of having the episode as the, the Big Lebowski, but and even me being a huge fan of Big Lebowski, once I'd watched it, I was like, hmm, what am I gonna talk about? How am I gonna? like analyze this in such a way for so long whereas when i'd watched in bruges i was like right there's so much more depth to this there's so much more we can explore so actually i think we need to flip it i actually love both films i probably prefer in bruges slightly more because i think the the script and maybe the pure britishness of it is just tighter and it is i think it's clever more clever and funnier that's just yeah that's just my opinion but anyway so that that's our pairing this week yeah go and watch them both i'm sure you'll love them johnny didn't that's we move on anyway so we have we do have some listener questions about the big lebowski so well we've we've got more of a, a comment from finding film uh is it bad i went to live my life i want to live my life in the way of the dude a true inspiration and i've got to say it's, uh, I think I think we all have been living our life like the dudes during lockdown because there's been nothing else to do. <laughs> yeah, I, he's not a bad person, is he? No, he's not. And he, no, he's, he's actually like, yeah, he's, he's certainly not a bad person. He, I understand what you mean, like chilling around, watching TV. Mm-hmm. Sounds pretty cool to me. Going bowling. Yeah, I would love that too. I just, um, as long as your apartment's not like his because his apartment made me feel slightly on edge. It just needs a good hoover. 
<laughs> yeah, it's filth. And I mean, probably the most important question of the week: Did the rug tie the room together or not? It did tie the room together. To be fair, didn't it? I mean, they mentioned it about five times. It, it it must have tied the room together. It absolutely had to have tied the room together. Big Al writes in and he asks, what film are you surprised that the other hasn't seen yet? So I was really surprised. I know we chatted about Stanley Kubrick last week, but I was quite amazed that Jamie hadn't actually seen 2001 Space Odyssey. Now, I know he has an aversion to, in general, doesn't always enjoy the slower films, but in terms of pure cinematography and being visually stunning and the fact he has the 4k blu-ray so there's no excuse that film is just stunning even if you're not fully on board with it the runtime's actually not that long it's oh, been, is it only two hours 27 minutes or something and i think it's only two hours in my head well I have right, to, okay. maybe i should check that before i say it anyway i was just amazed you hadn't seen because you you are all for an aesthetically pleasing film let's say oh no i, I absolutely am and it's so on my list like oh by the way just so you know 2001 is 149 minutes oh what did i say 227 oh no i meant two two hours 27 149 minutes that's quite a long time so the thing that puts me off about 2001 is that i've heard it has pretty much zero plot and is that true 2001 has a very thin plot but the idea is it's in old uh, science fiction it's the the deeper themes and the meanings that you're supposed to take from it. So some people are into that, or some people aren't into that. But the difference is, before 2001, sci-fi on the whole, aside from Forbidden Planet, was hokey, cheaply done. Kubrick made the gold standard. To this day, it stands up as the gold standard of what sci-fi should look like. It all made sense. The fact that he had guys from NASA were actually advising them on what they think things will be like in X amount of years. Obviously, it's not all coming to pass, but everything makes sense. And that's why it's just brilliant. And again, we wouldn't have had Star Wars was taking that and putting it the other way and making a used future. But this was super, super clean. What if we went next year? What would it look like? Star Wars and Alien was that space technology's 200 years old and we've been using it over and over again and it's it's so normal we don't treat it nice anymore and it's dirty the only bit in alien that looks like 2001 would be the hospital wing which is all clean and white and yeah yeah, yeah. of course yeah yeah i mean so from our point of view i'm slowly like i've slowly been bullying johnny over the last few weeks to watch films that he hadn't seen that i wanted him to see such as dirty dancing um what else have i made you see um, that you hadn't no there's been a few over the last few weeks well to be fair dancing. most of the films on the podcast we've done so far to be fair I, yeah. haven't, I haven't yeah so aside from Seven I'm trying to remember every film we've done so far but on the whole most of the films we've watched for the pod have been for the first time actually most, even the things yeah so I, I've been trying really hard to make Johnny watch or not make him but get Johnny to watch films he hadn't seen films that I'm I mean I'm not I couldn't necessarily say I'm surprised Films I'm desperate for him to see, Roadhouse, which he still hasn't seen, Ghost World, Lost in Translation, desperate for him to see The Handmaiden, desperate, desperate, desperate for him to see Uncle Buck. There's there's a lot of films on, I've got a watch list here ready for him. And yeah, The Apartment is another one that I'd really love him to see. We're, we're, we're going to get there. We're going to get there, I promise you. The next question is from Views by Quinn, a friend he's really funny he does uh, he does lots of reviews on instagram as well you can find him there 
What's a director, actor, and genre combination you've always wanted to see? Now, would you like me to go first? Because I've got yeah, this definitely. all nailed down. So I've done this before, I, and, and I've, I've not just gone for that. I've gone for the writer as well, cinematographer. I've gone for the soundtrack as well. So, yeah, I have. Yeah, it's just something I did. So the director, I'd gone for William Friedkin. Now, I, don't, I haven't mentioned him a lot on the pod, but I really, really love... Uh, William Friedkin's style. He obviously is most famous for The Exorcist. He's done an amazing film called Sorcerer, which doesn't get anywhere near as much love as it should. But he's also got this like Coen Brothers-esque style that he did a film called Killer Joe, which is really, he knows how to write like dark humor, black comedy, that kind of thing. So as well as that, he's done a film called Cruising with Al Pacino. So when I take all that into account, I would, the actors I would love to star, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, Ryan Gosling, and you're going to see where this is going very quickly. Jake Gyllenhaal, Ryan Gosling, for the for the female part of that, I'd have Nicole Kidman and Charlize Theron. And the writer, I'm going to have Lee Wanell, who wrote one of my favourite films, Upgrade, and The Invisible Man. And the cinematographer is obviously going to be Roger Deakin. And we're talking a dark neo-noir thriller that is that's that's where I'm going with that, and I so like take from that what you will. Think about think about uh, Blade Runner slash Drive slash Nightcrawler style vibe, and then when you think about the soundtrack, you want to be thinking of uh, maybe something like uh, synthwave eighties gunship style music, and that's that that like is our my dream. intro, like our intro, like exactly like our <laughs> intro. I actually, do you know, I actually messaged Gunship and asked them if we could uh, use one of their tracks for our intro, and they didn't respond. Which, <laughs> come on, guys, one day. I know you listen. I know he's all. I know all he's listening. Well, all three is listening every week. Just come on, give me a break. I was going to say for my film, I would like, and there's rumours this would be happening. The cast is already set because they're already there, but there's rumours for a while about Tarantino doing a Star Trek film, but it was originally as just a... You would like the writer. Yeah, I would love to see someone do something totally different. I'll tell you why. I don't talk much about Star Trek on the pod because I'm sure it's not of mass interest to people, but what, what (laughs) what I would say is recently they've really pushed out with trying to do different things, so... They've got multiple series going on and it kind of caters for here's your action audience, here's your intellectual audience. And they've done a show that's quite like Rick and Morty called Lower Decks. Lower Decks showed me, I always thought the idea of making a comedy from Star Trek was sacrilege because it's serious and it should be taken seriously and you, you can't joke about it. And I really love that series. And that's proved to me that someone can come and do something and if it's done well, it can be totally different, but I'll buy into it. And if anyone can do that, I believe Tarantino can make an original series Star Trek film and do something which completely, as we've talked about, subverts my expectations and it won't end with a giant light beam in the sky or blowing up the Enterprise for the sixth time in however many films or whatever. I, th- I just think he, if anyone could do it differently, it would be him. And he is obsessed with that era and he knows the characters. I know he knows them. And he knows it inside out. Yeah, and he absolutely and does. He's so passionate when he talks about it. I don't know. For me, that's what I'd like. But I know that is quite is the scary. So, well, 
So when I first heard that, I was like, right. So I like the the new trilogy in temp, like the the Star Trek films. Mm-hmm. When I say new trilogy, the one from like what was it, two thousand and seven? Well, I think like, yeah, it's, it's a, a yeah, yeah, Chris Pine. Yeah, yeah. So I love that. I am not the biggest fan of. I quite like Star Trek. I, I can sit and watch it like absolutely fine. I do find it a little bit boring at times. It's uh, it's kind of like the the less cool version of Star Wars. I feel. I'm really sorry for Star Trek fans. I, like I watch it, like I watch it and I enjoy it. Like so, I'm not, I'm not having a dig. I'm just saying there's usually less action. It's far more campy. But what what I think the Star Trek fans were freaking out about when that came to light was that Tarantino's gonna do something totally different, like you said, which I would love personally. I think it would be incredible. I think I would. What if he makes it? Will. What what if he what if he makes it Star Trek? It's an eighteen. What it's an eighteen and. You've got you've got like Leonardo DiCaprio as Captain Kirk, which would be amazing. <laughs> by the way, I'm just gonna say that it would happen. be amazing. I've just thought of that on the spot right now, but it, that would be amazing. Be, no, be but, Brad Pitt, if you're going for Solus Kirk, he's he's got more of it about it. But no, what I would say is if there's a logic and a reason for it, if they pick a dark story, or and there's a reason for it it can work oh because, you're getting me excited man actually. genuinely you're getting me excited for it someone's had this debate before and they've talked about how again sorry for people who aren't into Star Trek the original Star Trek series on the whole it's like horror they find something something horrific happens usually a load of people die then they have to stop it before it kills lots of other people so actually people's yeah well, I mean it's, it's horror but it's like it, yeah but it's, it's it's like Scooby-Doo yeah of that era but what I'm saying is People went mad when Discovery was one of the most recent Star Trek series. And I think, Jamie, you'd thoroughly enjoy that because it's much more like Star Trek 2009 and it's darker in time. I've seen the first season. Yeah, I, I I really enjoy that show. I think it's brilliant. But what I was going to say was you can have dark stories in Star Trek and they work if, if, if they're done well and they have the right context. If they're truly yeah. lost and out there in a part where there's no rule and they have to break the rules to get out the scenario... I'd love it. You know, yeah, I, it. I think it'd be really good. And and just, I don't I know, would love it. Tarantino would embrace all the elements that others might shy away from. And yes, he might introduce super violence into it, but more so he will allow the Trekkie talkie bits, you know. He understands, he yeah, does he just, really he understand just understands it. it. But, he but gets it. Enough on Star Trek, enough on Star Trek. Yeah. Do, do you know what? I, I will just finish with, like I actually mentioned um, to Quinn who wrote in the other day that we were, we were talking about DC, and, like the DC universe and the Snyder Justice League and how we think the DC universe needs to be rebooted and stuff like it needs, it needs new directors and stuff. I'm like, yeah, I would actually like to see a Scorsese directed DC, like sort of like set in Gotham City that doesn't focus on this. Like the superheroes are just side characters. It just focuses on the gangsters. Well, you, you know, well. originally Scorsese was supposed to direct Joker, wasn't he? Initially, we were told it was like him and Leonardo DiCaprio was what we were promised. Well, that's a good job he didn't, isn't it? Because Todd Phillips, yeah. Joaquin Phoenix. But, you know, I've got nothing We spoke about this Joker. before. Yeah. Oh, I, it's such a rip. It's such a rip of him a King of Comedy and Taxi Driver. It a is, but I think rip. someone... I was, I was speaking to someone about this recently, and they raised a valid point, which was actually... Maybe it's to introduce people who hadn't seen those films, though, these ideas. And maybe they'll go yeah. back and watch them for it. And I think maybe we can't always say, oh, that's, you know, that's taking that from that. It's like, it is. But if it's building on it enough and it then makes them say, I want to know more. Like, let, let let me know more about the King Comedy. Let me know more about this film. If it gets people to delve into it, then I think that's OK. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's a thin I'm, line. I'm, I know it's a thin line. 
I really like so don't get me wrong like I, I walked out of the cinema really loving Joker I really liked it but knowing what the king of comedy is it's uh, it's and it's not it's not a, it's not a broadly seen Scorsese film a lot of people haven't seen king of comedy a lot most people have seen Taxi Driver with king of comedy they're like have you seen it Johnny by the way no I haven't I've only seen Taxi Driver right seen king of comedy. so when so watch it right and when I tell you now that you it it really does cheapen Joker because it's almost a play by play. It's it's really really like it. In Joker's still good separately. It's fine, but it's just an absolute copy without being called King of Comedy. I just, Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I just I, again, it's hard for me to comment because I've watched it. When I've watched it, it'd be interesting to go back to that. But there's there are so many films that exist because they are effectively building on, let's say, rather than directly copying ideas and and going that next level because i love the chase scene in north by northwest in the in the fields but i know for a fact it was in a previous film and hitchcock took it and then again in from russia with love they replicated it because it was in north by northwest so there is a cycle of yeah no, building no, there is, there is. And, but that's and, one know. sequence or a whole film yeah true um <laughs> anyway right so uh last question well last we've got a, a double barrel question uh-huh. so patch writes in to movies in a pod shell at gmail.com just like you can and he says pod question it's a two-parter part one when slash if cinemas ever reopen what would be the first movie you see new or old so i really hope there's going to be a theatrical imax release of justice league because I think this links into the second part of the question, but I'm all for the fact that we are now at a point where we can pay a cinema ticket to mission from home and watch things at home, but I still personally want to see things at the cinema, and what I want to see is Justice League on an IMAX screen because it's in a 4-3 format, and the reason it's in a 4-3 format is because that's for IMAX, but unfortunately I don't have an IMAX screen at home, so I would... (laughs) Almost. No, so I'd quite like to actually see it the way the classic phrase but i'd like to see it the way the director intended to be completely honest yeah and 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 so so i actually lived almost lived out my dream remember that time when covid hit but then it all looked like it was going to recover and cinemas were opening and it was e out to help out and me and you were going out for beers until 10 o'clock Ah, oh, those were the days. Were anyway, nice. I actually went cinema. I've got I've got a unlimited pass, like no bragging or anything. I'm just just saying. So I'll, I'll go and watch like pretty much whatever I can. And at that time, they, they remember they started bringing out the Back to the Future films, Jurassic Park, but they were showing Goodfellas, and I went and seen Goodfellas, mm. which, as you know, in my top three, um, went and seen Goodfellas in the cinema, which I'd never seen, which was actually incredible um if i'm if i'm gonna pick some i won't pick some any any new films but i will pick some old ones mm-hmm. um I, I mean i'd love to see terminator 2 at the cinema i think that would that would be amazing yeah uh i'd love to see upgrade in the cinema i never got to see that i mentioned it earlier on the pod i guess i guess i'd really love to see uh, in a lonely place or on the waterfront those those type of old films they have that romance do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, 100%. I was going to say, though, you know, we were talking the other week about swords and sandal films and that era where Hollywood just slapped all the budget on making it as big a cinematic experience as possible. All those 70 mil films, like, I'd love to have seen Lawrence of Arabia at the cinema because that film mm. is beautiful. But ima- imagine, 70 mil as well. Yeah, imagine seeing that in all its glory. I saw... Restored, Ra- yeah. 
I was lucky enough to see it wasn't a digital restoration a few years ago Christopher Nolan re-released 2001 a Space Odyssey and oversaw the 70mm prints which basically they were the original 70mm prints or they were one of those original 70mm prints was taken and restored cleaned up and then when you went to see it at the cinema it was still on film it wasn't a digital clean up yeah. version it was the thing Yeah. and I went to see that in Australia and honestly again minimal plot or not it was just stunning and I saw it on you know a screen so huge and it was just stunning and again that for me is there's certain films which are just a, an audio visual experience you can't replicate at home projector big TV whatever you just can't do it unless you're in a cinema and that was it nice segue nice segue into our next and um, into the part two of the question and then so then Pat, Patch says has COVID killed cinema and is home streaming the future as technology gets better you're shaking your head already sorry has COVID killed cinema and is home streaming the future as technology gets better I think again this there's two points this as we just said with the Justice League thing I'm happy to pay to watch Justice League at home because at the moment we can't go to the cinema but are you happy to pay twenty pounds? Well, it's going to be at least fifteen pounds, isn't it? Realistically, fifteen, yeah, fifteen pounds. Because I'm certainly not. I think the logic of that is, though, if we're not in a, ugh, again, sorry to mention pandemic, we always try and usually avoid it. But in the scenario we're in at the moment, we can't gather indoors and we can't watch things together. The logic of that price tag of twenty pounds or fifteen pounds is your whole family watch it, or you get people around. And if you said to me. Johnny, I'm coming around. Let's watch Justice League together tonight. You sort out the rental. Then I do it. You bring the beers. I'll sort yeah, the fine. rental. You know, seven fifty each. You sort out the rental. I sort out the pizza. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, but that's, do you know what I mean? And yeah. that, and that for me is probably the way it will go eventually because Disney's already tried it with Mulan, which Jamie's made his views about very clear on his. Don't start Instagram. me on them. So yeah, carry on, but, and I'll, I'll. But what I would say is because of what's happened over the past 18 months we've had to get to this point for the cinemas to make money because there's films like the invisible man which had a very limited release and got cut off and then they released it on um, incredible on things like virgin and virgin media and and sky store or whatever and you paid for it to make the money back wonder woman's been released this way black widow i thought they were going to but maybe they're holding off but the point the point is for me there's a lot I like about the home viewing experience. I like the fact I can pause it. I like the fact the fact there's no one kicking your chair. There's no one kicking my chair. You I, like the fact there's no one got their phone out. Yeah, I, I have it, and and there are those aspects of it. But if I want to also have that experience, I know there's certain cinemas at certain times I can go to to have that experience as well. Is that fair? And I think if I go Absolutely, to yeah. something like the Everyman Cinema, if you they have it's not the biggest screen, but it's quite a select group, and because it's not particularly cheap to get in the people who are there who've paid want to watch the film so i know i'm not gonna have to be worrying about someone talking through it or looking at the phone or that's that's my takeaway from that i don't think cinema is dead but what i've said to jamie over the past 18 months we've talked about this a lot i say 18 months is actually really a year but we've said a lot a lot the cinemas are going to be few and far between because it's not going to be cost effective to run them so i think it's either going to be an indie place which you know, let's say if there's six indie places, there's one left, and that is the one destination you go to. I think the electric's lucky in the Midlands because it's isn't it the oldest in the UK, so it will always have that tag and people will go for that. Yeah, is that correct? And then yeah, yeah, so you sell this in the UK, yeah. Yeah, so then other other cinemas, the the chains, I think, I don't think there'll be as many. I just don't think there'll be as many people no. about going. 
Trolls 2, you know, yeah. loads of people have downloaded Trolls 2 last year and it and it grossed so much Trolls, money. Trolls World Tour grossed 100 million. Right. So on that basis, think about how much cheaper it probably was for distribution to go straight onto Sky Store than it is for them to send it around to all these cinemas, etc. Johnny's heard off me for about a year and as, as has everyone else that knows me because I get quite unreasonably annoyed at some of these streaming companies most notably Disney. Like I, I will, I will, I will go off on Disney because they're the easiest to target at the moment. Um, they present themselves as a magical children's company that really cares about the consumer, but actually, like they're the biggest money grabbing, like consumer hating company out there because they literally just all they want to do is nickel and dime everyone, and they they'd rather sort of if they if they can get a bigger slice of the pie, which I understand they're a business, I, I fully get it, but. They, they put Mulan on for £25, right? Mm. £25. But you don't get it. So if, you, if you've got Disney Plus, you don't get it. You get Disney Plus. You've got to buy Disney Plus and pay £25. You can't just pay £25 or have Disney Plus. It's ridiculous. So at this point now, they're exploiting the consumer. And so people argue that, yeah, and I mentioned earlier, um, I don't like having the back of my chair kicked. No, I don't. I don't like having... I, I really, really hate when people get their phone out because they're not watching the film. I do remember when I went to see Captain Marvel, there was a row of people in front of me, like, all getting their phones out, Snapchatting the entrance to the end, like, the opening credits of the film. And the reason they're doing that is simply just so they can show people that they are watching the film, like, and show off. Like, that drives me nuts. At the same time, there are, like... There's loads of independent cinemas out there that are really really important and show really really important films i think that streaming needs it, it streaming obviously has got bigger and it, it eventually will be the majority i don't think cinemas will die like johnny said i think that there's going to be far less of the chains they'll be like at this moment in time that some of them are stones for away aren't they like mm-hmm. we're in we're in the west midlands and there's probably like one five miles in each direction um, and so there'll, so there'll definitely be a lot less. I just think it's it's really sad that it's going this way. And to experience film properly, I really think you need a huge screen, massive speakers and a darker room. And you can tell me what you want. I have seen the argument of, oh, wow, well, I, I have a 50 inch telly and uh, 7.1 surround sound. I don't care what you've, I don't care what you've got in your house, right? You could have a seven grand telly, right? And you can have, a 10 grand surround sound I don't even know if they exist right you could have all that probably and do. I'm telling you your experience well, I, I said they probably do you can spend yeah, as much you, as you the, want hi-fi and surround sound if you've yeah, got, got and you, yeah you are not getting IMAX you, or, you, or you're not getting a normal you're not getting what you get in the cinema and that's that's all I'm saying the truth is if you wanted to scratch the surface of getting a true cinematic experience you would be looking at thousands of pounds and not far off like 10 grand without getting too into it me and Jamie are into our hi-fi and into our home cinema setups and both of us I'd say have relatively modest home cinema setups they're not you know modest uh, I mean they're not I, w- I would say me I would say you and I are probably, have probably got better than most okay the truth is as much as I enjoy having I'm lucky I have a projector which I bought years ago and, and I've got a 5.1 surround setup I love it, but it's still not the same because the truth is I can't crank it up to the same level the cinema can either. I live in a block of flats. Do you know what I mean? So again, I'm not yeah, getting course, the, tr- yeah. the true 
in inverted commas, cinema experience. Jamie laughs at me because when it's winter, everyone gets really miserable, but I get happy because I call it projector season because it gets dark at five o'clock so I can sit through two films and it not be too <laughs> late this. in the evening to annoy people. So you can turn the dynamic range completely off and have it as it is in the cinema with it on full. Yeah. But then when it comes to summer and you start the films later, you end up putting the dynamic range so it's not as loud and jumpy yeah. in the evenings. What I will say is that, again, streaming, right? You're paying £15 20 pounds or however much it is you're paying all this money and stream you're getting all depends on one your internet you can have the fastest internet in the world by the way and it's still you're still not going to download that at the same speed that a blu-ray is going to play at no. or you're seeing off a projector so the quality is just not as good as you think it is but i suppose it's what people care about because for people who are into i'm a snob yes yeah, for people who are into the high for hi-fi or into physical media you're going to pay for that but for people who aren't into that i suppose they don't mind but to give you a baseline if you have a 4k stream a 4k stream on netflix or on amazon prime or on disney is still less data per second and less resolution than you would get on a blu-ray so it's not 4k it's like it's a 4k stream but it's not 4k it's it's i have to try and get this yeah, into it, people it, it's it's yeah it's that resolution but the codec is so compressed that it's not true 4K. If you get a 4K yeah. And disc, it will look great. Yeah. Yeah. It will still look great, but you will be missing so much detail. Like, And like I say, like this is this is only for the enthusiasts. Like, yeah, 100%. Like me and, me and Johnny are enthusiasts. I mean, we, we, spend, we spend, I don't know, 12 hours between us a week, like watching films and editing a podcast. So we obviously are enthusiasts. The, but yeah, at the end of the day, the, the detail isn't as... Well, I don't know. I guess I'm a snob. I'm a massive snob. It's, it's, yeah. Basically, it's, it's cheesy, but there are faults with going to the cinema. But we love the experience enough that it's worth, worth the effort. That's the way I. The romance, the romance, the pure romance of cinema. As per usual, guys, that's that's us done for the week. Please, please, please. We love it when you go on those Apple iTunes or whatever it is you do. I don't have an Apple phone, so I can't even tell you. But if you're listening on Apple, just go to our podcast. And please, we only accept five-star ratings. So go give us a five-star rating. That'd be absolutely lovely. Get us to the top. Get us to, the, I don't know, the top 100. I'd be happy with that. Top 100 film podcasts. Would you be happy with that, Johnny? Do you reckon we could get there? If we get there, I'd be very happy right now. I'd take that. Yeah, come on. Give us a five-star rating. I, I, I would love that. And as always, thank you so much for listening. You can find me at Movies in a Nutshell on Instagram. And you can find Johnny at jcb.video. Thank you very much. And see you all later. Later.